Hear now the word of God Almighty. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Let us pray. Almighty God, we seek your help. We ask, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit. Give us, O God, the wisdom to understand. Grant to us, O Lord, the strength to bear up in your presence. We ask for your help. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Well, previously in the book of Romans, we have seen in chapter 3 that no flesh by deeds of the law will be justified in the sight of God. That was in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. We also saw that boasting, all boasting, is excluded not by the law of works, but by the law of faith. And here in this passage, we see that even the righteous, even those who are justified in God's sight, have no grounds for boasting. And this is for three reasons. There is no boasting because justification means righteousness imputed by faith. No boasting because justification is by grace and therefore not by any merit or by any works. And thirdly, no boasting because justification means the forgiveness of our sins. We'll look at those each one at a time. Let's look at this first. No boasting because justification is by faith. The apostle begins with the question, What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? Understand that Abraham, in the scriptures, is a pattern of righteousness. He was called, of course, the friend of God, the father of all of God's people. Even Jesus recognized Abraham's reputation for righteousness. He contrasted the wickedness of the Jews in his day with Abraham, saying, if Abraham were your father, or if you were Abraham's children, why don't you do the things that Abraham did? You see, even Jesus is recognizing Abraham as a righteous man who did righteous things. In Christ's parable of the rich man and Lazarus, he called heaven Abraham's bosom. Now, if heaven is called your bosom, you must be a righteous man indeed. And Jesus also likened Gentiles going to heaven as them coming from the east and west and reclining at Abraham's table. So Abraham, all of this to say, is regarded as a righteous man. He's regarded by Christians as a righteous man. Father Abraham 
had many sons, and I am one. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all just praise the Lord, right? I can't be the only one. All of this is just to say that Abraham is regarded, he is considered to be a righteous man. He is a pattern for righteousness. And when we observe his story in the book of Genesis, we see that is very often the case. This would have been true, of course, for Paul's audience in Rome. And especially for the Jewish audience who regarded Abraham as very much a righteous man. But also for the Gentiles who were being grafted into and becoming heirs of Abraham by Christ. No one could deny that Abraham was a righteous man. Indeed, even a self-righteous man would have to admit that Abraham's righteousness exceeds any of our own. I want you to consider, I, I moved from Georgia to Pennsylvania to preach here. Abraham moved from the Ur, uh, Ur of the Chaldees to the promised land a much farther distance. Abraham did a lot of things that many of us will not do. You recall that Abraham once nearly killed his own son at the command of God. Abraham did a lot of things that no man could ever claim to have done. So Abraham was indeed a righteous man, and his righteousness exceeds our own. And this is precisely why Paul has chosen Abraham as an example. He will argue from the greater to the lesser. If even righteous Abraham could not stand before God on his own merit, then what hope have we? For in terms of righteous deeds and a righteous life, Abraham far exceeds any of us. Thus the question, what did Abraham find? Here in verse 1, what was it that he found? When he stood before God, did he find himself standing on his own efforts and his own goodness? Did he claim his genealogy or his membership in anything or the works that he did? What did he find? Now, in verse 1, some would translate Abraham, our father, according to the flesh, meaning the physical father, physical father perhaps of the Jews. And that is possible. I do prefer the translation that we have here. What did he find according to the flesh? In other words, when he considered himself as a man apart from the grace of God, what did he find? Briefly, there are two reasons why I take it that way. First of all, going back to chapter 3, remember that by the deeds of the law, there shall be no flesh justified in God's sight. The reference to Abraham finding something according to the flesh fits very well with that understanding. And then secondly, there seems to me to be a correspondence between what he found according to the flesh in verse 1 and justified by works in verse 2. Right? So what he found according to the flesh, justified by works. Works and flesh many times in the New Testament mean the same thing. So I take that to refer to human attainment, effort, or merit. What did Abraham find on his own basis? In either case, we know that Abraham found that before God, he had nothing of which he could boast. And the apostle continues, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. 
Now, Abraham probably could boast if it were just he and I together, or him and all of us. He had some things he could boast about, but certainly not before God. And what the apostle has done here is he's constructed a, a destructive syllogism, right? A, a modus tollens, where he, he says, um, if Abraham were justified by works, this is what we call a first-class condition, meaning the apostle assumes it to be true for the sake of argument, right? If I were a millionaire, I would buy such and such. And you're maybe not a millionaire, but you're assuming it's true for the sake of argument. Paul is saying, so if Abraham were justified by works, then he would have something to boast about. But Abraham was not justified by works. Therefore, he has nothing about which he can boast. And so the righteous man, the righteous pattern, the one who is set before us in Scripture as setting a good example of righteous conduct is now shown to be one who has nothing to boast about before God, very simply because he's not justified by works. Now here comes the proof of this. And notice where the apostle goes for his proof. For what does the scripture say? This is instructive to us that Paul, of course, as an apostle, he speaks under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he's given good rational arguments so far. But ultimately, his authority is the scripture. He appeals to the word of God. And that should be a reminder to us that in matters of truth, we appeal finally to the word of God. Our question ought to be like Paul. What does the scripture say? Well, he quotes Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, which we read just a little bit ago. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. You see, God accepted Abraham's faith as fulfilling the requirement or meeting the condition for having righteousness. We might say that Abraham found himself acceptable before God according to the law of faith, which, of course, excludes all boasting. This is where we we get that term imputed, by the way. You often hear about imputed righteousness, and imputed means that righteousness is reckoned to you from outside. That comes from this word that is translated in our translation as accounted, Other versions may say reckoned or counted, but the point is is that it is credited to Abraham. It is not his to begin with. It comes from outside of him. But when he believes, the Lord credits it to his account, as it were. To be justified, then, means to be declared righteous in the sight of God on the basis of righteousness that is reckoned or accounted. We see then that justification refers not to what men are in themselves, but rather to how God regards them in his sight, how he reckons them. Please notice that Moses was not saying, and Paul is not saying, that Abraham's faith was his righteousness. That would be a mistake to say, because then that would make faith a work like the other works, right? If, if Abraham's faith was his righteousness then he might have something to boast about. No, it's by faith, right? You see, uh, his faith is the instrument by which Abraham received the righteousness from God. Where did that righteousness come from? From Abraham? No, from God who counted it to him as righteousness. Specifically, the righteousness of the Redeemer. Remember, the promise to Abraham 
included a seed. And that seed is the same seed that was promised to Adam and Eve in the garden. And the blessing that God promised Abraham to be a blessing to all nations, he said, would come from his body. Abraham was trusting in the Redeemer. Jesus said that Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. The book of Galatians says that the gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham. So Abraham was believing God's promise concerning the Redeemer. And when he believed that promise concerning the Redeemer, God counted it, that is to say, the sacrifice of the Redeemer, to Abraham as righteousness. So we see then that there is no boasting, very simply because justification, the right standing before God, comes by faith. And if it comes by faith, that excludes works and it excludes any claim, any merit, any boasting. Secondly, we see that no boasting because righteousness is before God is by grace or as a gift and not by works. Verse 4 says, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. It's interesting the word debt here, obligation. It actually corresponds to Genesis chapter 15 when the Lord says, Abraham, I am your reward. That's uh, the same word that is here translated as debt. Now, God says, uh, now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. This is a simple illustration of this principle. You all get this. When you get your paycheck from your employer, you don't send them a thank you card and say, thank you for my paycheck. You understand that you earned that. You do not accept your wages as a gift. Those are not something that were given to you freely, but rather something you earned. You worked for that wage. It was owed to you. In fact, if you worked and your employer did not pay you or your customer did not pay you, that would be unjust. They would be withholding something from you that God says you ought to have. The worker, said Jesus, is worthy of his wages. Jesus affirms this principle that that when someone works, it incurs an obligation on the one for whom he's working. But is that how men obtain righteous standing before God? We do something for God, right? God needs something from us. And then God becomes our debtor when we do something because we do things so well. And now God is obligated to pay us. And if he doesn't pay us, we're going to go there and, and talk to him and say, God, pay us what you owe us. Something that we always have to keep in mind is we never want from God what he owes us. If God were to pay us according to what we have earned, we would get wrath and fury. We do not want what God owes us. We want a gift from God. None of us could call upon God and demand what he owes us, not, at least not to our benefit. That's not how it was with Abraham, and that's not how it is with us. Martin Bucer, who was a contemporary of John Calvin during the uh, 16th century into the 17th, said this on this passage, If one merits anything by his work, what is merited is not freely imputed to him. That's pretty self-evident. But rendered to him as his due. Now, faith is counted for righteousness, not that it procures any merit for us, 
but because it lays hold of the goodness of God. Hence, righteousness is not due to us, it is freely bestowed. And that's the point that's being discussed here, is that it's not a wage, not a debt, not an obligation, but rather a gift from God. So if Abraham were to boast about his righteousness, he would be boasting about something that God freely gave him. Now, it would be appropriate for him to boast in the Lord, right? But not to boast, not to... And by the way, to boast simply means to to think that he has some advantage over God. To think that he has some claim to God on the basis of what he has done. Now, I want to warn that it doesn't mean... Well, let's look at verse 5. There's a contrast. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. And here's what I want to say is that this doesn't mean that righteous men never do good works lest they lose their reward, right? That's not the case either. We see with Abraham that wasn't the case. And we have to understand that in this part of Romans, the apostle is telling us how man gains right standing before God. He is not telling us what is the rule of man's conduct once he has right standing before God. So sometimes people think that if they are, if they are working, if they're doing anything, you know, if they're obeying or if they're doing any good works at all, that that means they're not trusting in the Lord. But it doesn't have to be that way. You just have to make sure that your trust in the Lord, your faith in the Lord precedes any works that you do and that the, any works that you do come from faith and you know that they're not earning God's favor. You're doing it out of gratitude and love. And that's the proper way, that's the proper order for obedience and faith. Jonathan Edwards on this passage says, it means that God in the act of justification has no regard to anything in the person justified as godliness or goodness in him. But that immediately before this act, God beholds him as an ungodly creature. So that godliness in the person to be justified is not so antecedent, that's before his justification, as to be the ground of it. In other words, the moment before a sinner is justified in the sight of God, his status is ungodly. And it is the justification that comes from God that allows one to be counted as righteous. It is not the case that one is righteous and then he is justified. To believe in him who justifies the ungodly in part means that we have to admit that we are ungodly. We don't need to trust God to justify the godly. You can be sure that God will justify the godly. Our concern is how can God justify the ungodly? Jesus said it this way, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And he did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so we believe, we have faith. If we have faith in God, we have faith in the God who justifies the ungodly. Which means, again, implicitly, we're confessing, we are recognizing our lack of godliness. Our need for the righteousness of God. Abraham's faith was in him who justifies the ungodly. That means Abraham came to God empty-handed, without any claim. 
Not seeking his wages, but seeking an undeserved gift. And he trusted in God's promise to him. And by means of that faith, he was then counted righteous. Think back to the Genesis 15 passage for a moment. And, and you realize Abraham in there was actually confessing his lack. Right? He had this promise to be a great nation and to be a blessing to the whole world. And he doesn't even have a child of his own. And he is confessing to God what he lacks. And it is on the basis of that that God reaffirms his promise to him, tells him the promise again, and tells him that his heir will come from his own body. So Abraham, by nature of the case, was confessing his lack, his need for God to do for him what he could not do for himself making Abraham a very good example of one who is justified by faith. Faith being that empty hand that seeks a gift from God, an undeserved gift. So we see then that justification is by grace, which would be contrasted with merit or work. There is nothing in the sinner to make him justifiable. It is merely by God's gift his graciousness towards the sinner. Let's look now at the third and final point. Justification requires forgiveness of sins. Therefore, there is no boasting for those who are justified. The truth of what Abraham found is confirmed for us by David in Psalm 32. Now, previously, we saw that the law of faith was witnessed to by the law and the prophets, right? This, this is witnessed to, said Paul, by the law. It's, it's not the law that justifies a man, but, but it, by the law of faith. And this is witnessed to by the law and the prophets. And now he's just given us an example from the law, Abraham. He's a witness. And here comes an example from the prophets. David, who can confirm what Abraham found. Just as David also describes, verse 6, the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Who is blessed, according to David? That man who attains righteousness by works? That man who stands before God on his own goodness? No, the man whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. The blessedness of which David speaks concerns Not only the righteousness that is granted to man, but also the righteousness, or rather the unrighteousness, that is taken away from man. Do you see this? Coming down to verse 7, he is speaking of the blessedness of forgiveness. So I want you to see that there are two things, two aspects to justification. The one, the first one we saw was the Lord reckoning or accounting to Abraham righteousness. But now here's the non-reckoning, as it were, of Abraham's unrighteousness. So the reckoning of Abraham's righteousness came first, or came earlier in this passage. He received something from God, which was the righteousness of Christ. And now in verses 7 and 8, we read about the unrighteousness that he needs to be, have removed from him. David is speaking, of course, of that blessedness of forgiveness. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. 
The word forgiven, a Greek word aphemi, means to let go or send away. It's a word that is used sometimes for a divorce. If a, a man sends his wife away, obviously he doesn't want to have anything to do with her anymore, right? And when it says that the Lord forgives our sins, he's, he's sending them away, taking them away from us. Now this forgiveness has two parts to it that are mentioned here in Psalm 32. And the first is covering sins. Blessed is the man whose sins are covered. This concept of covering sins is taught in the Old Testament. I'm going to give you two examples from Proverbs. Proverbs 10, verse 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. And this is not talking about covering up a crime, right? But rather a sin, once it's confessed and repented of, love covers over it. Love does not hold it against the person. Love does not put it in their face. Love covers over it. What does hatred do? Hatred stirs up strife. Hatred reminds. Hatred brings that sin back up. Hatred uncovers it. But love covers sins. Another proverb, he who covers a transgression seeks love. But he who repeats a matter separates friends. So in this instance, the context would be if if you had a friend who sinned against you and the two of you reconciled, the loving man covers that. The man who is full of hatred would go and repeat that matter and try to separate friends. You would gossip about it and ruin someone's reputation So this notion of covering sins in is something that God was teaching his people to do. And this is exactly what he does for his people. Psalm 85 verse 2 says, You have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered all their sin. This uh, brings to mind the condition put upon Christians to forgive others, right? And sometimes we have to forgive one another. We have to forgive people in the church. We have to forgive sometimes our parents or our spouses, our children, co-workers, etc. But you see the scale of the insult when we who are forgiven so much, right? When our sins have been covered, all of our sins have been covered And if we don't extend that same forgiveness to others who seek it from us. You see how that is not fitting. It doesn't go together. Those who are forgiven are forgiving people. And you will notice that this is something that is missing in in the unbelieving world at large. They they mistake forgiveness of sins in in two principal ways. In the first way, they want to forgive a sin before there's a sin. Before it's even acknowledged there's a sin. And they just want everything to be good and okay. Right? Whatever sinful behavior you want to engage in, as long as we love you, and love being a vague and meaningless statement, that means we don't ever disagree with you. Right? So that's they cover sin in a negative way. Or, if sin is confessed and acknowledged and repented of, they want to continually drag you down by it. Right? They cancel they, they uh, want you to lose everything and never have any opportunity for grace or restoration. But that is not how it is with God and that is not how it ought to be with God's people. We are people who have all of our sins covered, 
and they are many. Therefore, sometimes we will have to cover a few sins that are committed against us. Now, the second aspect of the forgiveness of sins mentioned here is the not counting of sin. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. The word impute here is the same word that was account earlier on in the passage. Same as reckon, this is that imputation. But here it's a non-imputation, right? So we had imputation, the act of giving to us of righteousness. And here we have not counting against us sin. We saw above that God justifies men by imputing righteousness when they believe. And the same thing happens when God does not count our sins against us. And this helps to explain in some measure how it is that the Old Testament saints were able to be forgiven their sins prior to the sacrifice of Christ. God, for those who trusted in the Redeemer, did not impute their sins against them. He did not credit their sins to their account. And this is how it works for Christians now. On the basis of Christ's sacrifice which preceded us, God does not count to us what our sins deserve. What our sins deserve was actually placed upon Christ. And when we believe, we receive that benefit. So far from counting our works in justification, we see that God actually justifies us By not counting our works. Do you see that? The lawless deeds and the sins. If Abraham or or if you or I were to go before God hoping to be justified on the basis of our works, we would find actually the opposite would happen. And so God in justifying us actually does the opposite. Part of his justifying of us means not counting our works. And, And actually that is the better by far. We don't want God to count against us our sins. So we see here what Abraham found. We we see he found that he had no cause for boasting because he was justified by faith. And when he believed, the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. We see that he was justified by grace. And we see that he was justified when his sins were forgiven. And a question comes in, how will we be found, right? We, We who are Christians, even though we maybe have been a Christian for a long time, We have to keep it in our mind that our standing before God, our legal status before him is based not upon something in us, but rather upon something that he says about us. He declares us righteous when we believe and on the basis of another person's righteousness, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to close with this from the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3. And this is what, by God's grace, we will find. Paul says in Philippians 3, verses 8 and 9, Indeed, I also count all things loss. And this is after he just got done listing all his credentials, humanly speaking, in the flesh. I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. 
So what will we find? Let it be that we find ourselves in Christ having a righteousness, not from ourselves, but the righteousness that comes from the Son of God. Let us pray. Father, you justify the ungodly, and that means, O oh God, that if we seek to be justified, we must confess our ungodliness to you. Forgive us our sins, O oh God. Cleanse us from unrighteousness. Cover our sins. Do not count against us our sins. Please, for Christ's sake, we ask you. Amen.